This episode of New Politics was released on the 19th of February, 2022, and produced on the land of the Wongal people. Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, the long night of the ukuleles on primetime television, how the weekend by-elections in New South Wales will affect federal politics, and the polls are currently favouring the Labor Party, but what are the obstacles standing in their way? I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis. I did not teach the Prime Minister how to play ukulele. And a big thank you to our new Patreon subscribers. Thanks for signing up. And it's also good to get some feedback. Someone in our audience said, I love this podcast, a very good analysis of the ridiculous government we have today, but it's not all one-way traffic. Someone else has got a completely different perspective saying that we're totally biased, such a one-sided slant, can't see why they're bothering. It's not very nice getting your feelings hurt in this particular way, but we shouldn't be deterred by these sort of comments, should we, David? Again, the whole, we are biased. It's not as if we're pretending that we are a pro-Morrison government podcast. And also, if they do anything worthwhile and valuable, I'd be the first one to acknowledge that. I really would. We've been critical on Labor, but praise Labor where they've done good things. We've had very good interviews with independent candidates, yet if they were to do something that we didn't think was right, we would jump on them. They all know this. It's part of the job of being a politician. And, of course, people in our position sometimes criticise unfairly. We don't mean to. In a lot of cases, uh, we don't have all the facts yet or we're in a bad mood. I don't think we've ever done that. I think all our criticisms of the government and its failings have been fair insofar as they've been failings. And I think it's also fair to say that the current government has not achieved very much at all. They had two promises for this term. They only attempted one and it didn't get through. So if they were a better government, I think the people who claim that we're biased, and I don't argue that we're biased, might find that we're a bit fairer or we're a bit less negative on the current government. And they're not listening because, as I think you've been told by Labor people, Eddie, we go hard on Labor on occasion when we feel they deserve it that we lean to the progressive side is a nice balance from the mainstream media who tend to lean to the conservative side. And if you'd like to support New Politics, you can support us through a Patreon subscription. It's just $5 per month for the Ruby Standard Supporter level or $10 per month for the Gold Standard Supporter level. We also do have a new t-shirt design available. It's the It's Time for Change t-shirt. But whether it's a subscription or if you just want to listen in, read our material online or buy a t-shirt or buy a book, it's all available at newpolitics.com.au and all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. talk of the town has been ukuleles 60 minutes and trying to find the april sun in cuba and this week we saw a continuation of the classic distractions from the morrison government and that strategy of deflecting from the important issues of the day 
Politicians will always try and humanise themselves and present themselves in the best way possible. And in the lead up to an election campaign, what better way to present yourself to a national audience than doing a little sing song with your family at Kirribilli House, forgetting the words to the song and getting the chords all wrong on a tiny stringed instrument. Take me to the April sun in Cuba. Oh. There was speculation that Scott Morrison was going to announce the election date on Sunday afternoon and have the soft interview on 60 Minutes on Sunday night to kickstart the election campaign, but it didn't turn out that way. Politicians do crave a media spotlight, but sometimes less is more, and Scott Morrison became the focus of attention for all the wrong reasons. Is this a strategy that actually works, and will we see more of it during the election campaign when it does get underway? This is probably a personal take. I don't really need to know too much about politicians' private lives. I think it is important that we know that they're married, that we know the names of their wives and children or partner, only so we can see if they're getting undue benefits from being the wife or child of the the Prime Minister. The role of Prime Minister's partner has been an interesting one in Australia. For the first 30 years or so, the wife was a known figure, but it really wasn't until Dame Enid Lyons who went on to become the first woman elected to the House of Representatives and the first woman to enter the ministry. Now, she wasn't a cabinet minister. She was a junior minister, but still. Her husband had died in 1939 and she stood for a Tasmanian seat, won it, and Robert Menzies was the one who promoted her into these roles. Since then, the talk has been, what should the Prime Minister's wife or partner do? Do they have a role? In America, the First Lady and the Australian's Prime Minister's wife is not the First Lady. If we were to have a First Lady, that would be the wife of the Governor-General or be, a, I guess, a First Man for people like Quentin Bryce. Scott Morrison is very good at wheeling Jen copyright trademark out when he's in trouble, but she doesn't seem to be the fix-all that he requires. Why that is, I don't really want to comment on, except I think that he thinks he his lack of popularity is less than it is. I don't think Jenny Morrison is a natural media figure. I suspect that she's a woman who is happy for a husband to be prime minister, but isn't happy to be a, an unofficial, undefined figurehead. And I think, too that she isn't the problem solver because her husband is deeply unpopular amongst the people who don't like him. And that centre of people who might go either way is shrinking very fast and most of the movement is going away from him, not to him. And two, I think there's a sense in which the Australian public doesn't want to know about his personal life where it's not impinging on public funds or public propriety or any of the usual things that these things do. So it was a, a botched campaign. Had he called the election on Sunday and moved in with this as a start, it would have set him back, I think, a long way. And as we see, there's probably other reasons he didn't call the election on Sunday. 
Well, Jenny Morrison is being used as a shield by Scott Morrison. He does have a political problem with women, so he uses his wife and two daughters to let people know that he understands women. He doesn't know what to do about a rape that occurs in Parliament House, so he uses Jenny to rescue him in that situation and ask what she would do. So spouses and their children should probably be left alone, but they shouldn't also be used for political advantage. And I can accept that there's going to be an interest from the public about who they actually are, but they're not the ones that actually appear on the ballot paper. They're not the ones that are being elected. And I'd prefer it if they just didn't appear in public at all. And, and for sure, if they want to support issues in the public interest or be patrons of community organisations, well, that's all fine. But just because your partner is the Prime Minister, that doesn't mean that you can be used politically to get your husband re-elected. And if you are going to be used as the so-called political secret weapon for your partner, well, you have to expect the scrutiny that comes your way. Anyone who says something in public can and should be held up to account. That doesn't mean personal abuse or threats or anything like that but we get as we've seen today we get feedback we get negative feedback some of which is justified some of which is harder to justify and that's just the the nature of going out in public so if jenny morrison was to say something controversial that should be discussed and held up to scrutiny and it's it's a risk that every time they bring her out it opens her up to attack it opens her up to scrutiny. I can't imagine what his children think sometimes. They're at that awkward teenage time where you really don't want to be seen with anyone outside of a very small circle of people. You know, again, they, should, they shouldn't be bought out and exposed to public scrutiny, except where appropriate. And none of it's been appropriate, the scrutiny that they've been exposed to. It's all been avoidable. It's all been, I think, damaging to both the, what they were trying to achieve and to the people themselves. Tony Abbott was the guy who said, vote for the fellow with the not-too-bad-looking daughters, which, one, what does that mean? And two, Kevin Rudd has daughters too. That's who Tony was campaigning against. Does he mean, one, you rank each man's daughters against each other in some kind of weird handmaid's tale or penthouse-style ranking? Or does it mean that Kevin Rudd's daughters were not as good-looking as Tony Abbott's daughters? And should a father be commenting on his daughter's looks anyway? I mean, sure, the Prime Minister can and should be proud of his or her children if they have them. If they don't have them, that's not, that shouldn't be an issue either. Again, in this sort of society that likes the personal, sometimes the personal can go too far. And just getting back to the music for a little bit, we don't see politicians playing musical instruments in public very often, and personally I think that there should be more of it. Here's Bill Clinton playing the saxophone in the 1992 US election campaign.
Did you ever think about playing professionally? Yeah, and I liked it tonight. I like being on the other side of the posse. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking you know of what your drummer said. What? He Sorry? said, if this music thing doesn't work out, you can always run for president. That's kind of the way you twist, Chuck. You carry that was seen as one of the key moments in that campaign. You know, Bill Clinton was trailing in the polls against George Bush, but managed to turn things around. The difference is that Bill Clinton can play the saxophone and Scott Morrison cannot play the ukulele and couldn't actually remember the words to The April Sun in Cuba. And a few people have asked us, what on earth was Scott Morrison thinking? How could this possibly work for him politically? He can't play. He can't sing. The entire 60 Minutes episode was try hard, low energy. How could this possibly work for him? And there's quite a few answers that we can give here. It keeps Morrison in the spotlight. And if the political conversation is based around the Prime Minister playing a ukulele, like we are right now, well, that distracts from all of the other important issues which are detrimental to Morrison's political stocks, such as the poor management of the pandemic, aged care problems, his problems with women, and his total collapse in the polls. And the other important way that it does work is that it gives Morrison's enemies an opportunity to attack him and his family, and then that activates his supporters either within the Liberal Party or within the electorate, and they start engaging in sympathy trolling, you know, like, how dare they attack Scott Morrison for just being a family man, or even better, you know, they say, how dare they attack Jenny Morrison for being a supportive wife, and on it goes. And that's why we get those family photographs of Morrison's family with the left foot photoshopped obviously in the wrong position. That's why we get those photographs such as Scott Morrison breaking protocol and getting off an RAAF plane and walking onto the red carpet at Williamstown in Newcastle. People get outraged. That's why we see the photographs of Scott Morrison and the Barramundi. People get outraged. The image is magnified. It occupies the time and energy of his opponents as well as getting the free publicity. It becomes a discussion point. People who dislike Morrison get outraged by it. Then Morrison supporters start attacking people on the left and claiming that they're being obsessed with the tiny issues. And this is what populists do. And it's a relatively new tactic in conservative politics. It's the tactic used by Boris Johnson in the UK. It's the tactic that was used by Donald Trump in the US. But based on what happened to Donald Trump, he lost the election in the US last year. And based on what's currently happening to Boris Johnson and to Scott Morrison, it's probably not such an effective strategy. Maybe it's just better just to do your job in the first place rather than resorting to stunts and gimmicks. Yeah. Edward Heath, who was Prime Minister of Britain, could play pipe organ extremely well and he could conduct an orchestra, which is a skill that very few people can do properly. It backfired on him too because the song, it's a deeply beloved song in Australian culture, which is probably why he picked it. Dragon are one of those uh, legendary acts who, particularly a certain generation who remember the pub bands, remember very fondly. Where he botches it is one... He clearly bought the ukulele in Hawaii, and you'd think that is something that he wouldn't want people to remember. Now, I know that later in the show, they launched a defense against the holiday to Hawaii, but it's the type of thing that you wouldn't want too many memories of it coming up. Two, the song itself is about wanting to be somewhere else other than you are, which I'm not sure is a good look for the Prime Minister. It was written, I think, because the songwriters thought how nice that would be. The song goes through this. I'm tired of the city life, summer's on the run. Again, an odd choice 
for a prime minister to pick of all the songs he could pick. Now, he's not going to do a Midnight Oil song, for example, but a song of wanting to be anywhere but you are, particularly after the week he'd had, while understandable, probably isn't the best look. And there have been criticisms of the 60 Minutes episode just being a puff piece for Scott Morrison, but there's also other considerations there. 60 Minutes is owned by Channel 9, and the chairman of Channel 9 is the former Liberal Party treasurer, Peter Costello. So there is that symbiotic relationship between mainstream media owners and the Liberal Party, so of course they're going to create a puff piece promotion for Scott Morrison. But I can't remember them doing any puff pieces about Julia Gillard or Kevin Rudd in the mainstream media or or Paul Keating in the lead-up to an election campaign, and definitely not for... Anthony Albanese. So this sort of process is quite predictable. Scott Morrison inserting himself or the Liberal Party inserting Scott Morrison into 60 Minutes. But there is a history of this process of prime ministers trying to weave their way into mainstream media and pop culture. Malcolm Fraser appeared on an episode of Countdown in 1979. Bob Hawke made an appearance on A Country Practice in 1986. So I'm not sure if we're talking about Baudrillard or Derrida here, but perhaps Scott Morrison understands more about cultural theory and postmodernism than we give him credit for. It's a little bit McLuhan too. The media is the message. John Howard refused to go on Rove Live, arguing, and I think rightly, that there wasn't a vote in in it for him, whereas Kevin Rudd went on it and got asked all the comedic, we'll call them, questions at Rove Ask And as I remember it, it was a good segment. John Howard knew that the Rove Live audience at the time, he wasn't going to swing anyone, so his energies were better put elsewhere. Yeah, I think, I think he stayed away from that type of lifestyle show, understanding at some level that he was never going to be seen as the type of knock-around bloke who'd do that. all the fun and games of politics and that's all a little bit of a sideshow but whenever there's a desperate government there are desperate tactics. Scott Morrison and Peter Dutton are ramping up the anti-China sentiment and for a relationship that has a two-way trade of over 100 billion dollars each year this is probably not a smart move and I do realize that it's not just about the money but they're suggesting that the Chinese government will be barracking for an Albanese Labor government at the next election and Why wouldn't they after all the rubbish that they've had to put up with over the past three years from the Liberal Party and the damage that has been done to the Australia-China relationship? And if the Liberal Party is going to criticise the Labor Party, who haven't been in federal government since 2013, well, let's look at what the 
Liberal Party has been up to. They created a cheap 99-year lease of the Darwin Ports for the Chinese government. Former Liberal Party minister Andrew Robb ended up with an ongoing consultancy worth $880,000. The member for Chisholm, Gladys Liu, she received a secret $1 billion donation from a Chinese businessman. The Julia Bishop Glorious Foundation funneled hundreds of thousands of dollars from Chinese mining interests into the Western Australian branch of the Liberal Party. And Liberal Party MPs such as Josh Frydenberg and Tim Wilson are pointing to the endorsement of China's Global Times newspaper where they promoted Albanese as a safe choice and said that Scott Morrison is a clown. Well, currently 55% of the Australian electorate believes in that sentiment. We've been saying that Morrison is an incompetent Prime Minister for well over three years, so there's nothing new that's being revealed there. But if the Liberal Party wants to ramp up the anti-China rhetoric, they have to be very, very careful because all of this stuff will come back to bite them. There's a lot of people in the Australian community who are of Chinese heritage and they do vote. And it's going to have a strong effect in those seats with a high proportion of the Chinese community, such as Reid and Benelong in New South Wales and Chisholm and Kuyong in Victoria. And, and I think that instead of trying to ignore this issue, it's probably best if the Labor Party probably attack this issue head on because they've got a lot that they can throw back at the Morrison government. First thing... I guess, to look at is that they use the Chinese community when it suits them. The head of the Liberal Party campaign in Gladys Liu's seat admitted in court yesterday that the voting signs were actually designed to mislead Chinese voters into voting one for the Liberal Party. He also claimed that these signs were weren't the ones that he he had approved that they were changed somewhere down the track. Uh, He said that under oath, so I'm quite happy to accept that as the truth. And it fits in with what we know of elements of the Liberal Party. I think it's also fair to say that Gladys Liu's too close ties to the Chinese government, and there's a lot that still needs to be brought out into public, and there's a lot that still has to be revealed, make it very dangerous for somebody like Peter Dutton to um, start spreading anti-Chinese rhetoric. And the other thing too, if Australia really does want to enter into a war with China, which it doesn't, our biggest warship was sent to Tonga to help with the uh, tsunami there, broke down and needed help from the Tongan Navy. And then because of uh, there were some sailors on the ship with COVID, Tonga had to go into lockdown for five days. So if that's how we deal with a smaller, less well-resourced government, how are we going to deal with China? So Dutton is walking a very dangerous line here, probably not thinking of the consequences, the international consequences, but thinking of his own future as a potential prime minister or a potential leader of the party. Oh, well, I'm very sure that Scott Morrison would like to roll in those Australian tanks into the streets of Beijing at some point over the next couple of months. But there's also other areas where the Liberal Party are attacking key members of the Labor Party. Scott Morrison has accused Christina Keneally of supporting violent abusers and rapists. And he also said that Anthony Albanese is clearly on the side of criminals. And this is all in the context of the government's security and immigration character test rules. And This sort of stuff and this sort of rhetoric, well, this is bread and butter for conservative politicians, not just in Australia, but all around the world. And it's essentially used to cover over their incompetence, mismanagement and corruption. 
they play the race card, they wheel out the national security, they wheel out immigration, it's this fear of others. But the problem for them is that while this tactic does turn on some people in the community, it turns many other people off. And it's just a question of whether there's enough people who will be influenced by this over-the-top commentary. And my feeling is that people have switched off. The whole anti-Chinese rhetoric has been around since probably 1788, but it ramps up in the 1830s and again in the 1850s and continues to ramp up over the next nearly 200 years. If China wanted to invade, they would have done it long before now. They'd have done it in 1952 or 53. Or again in 89 when Bob Hawke, bravely, let's be fair, granted asylum to all Chinese students living in Australia who didn't want to go back after Tiananmen Square. That's when China would have done stuff. I don't think Australia is big enough for China to worry about. Except, of course, when Chinese people come out. And like every single immigrant group that's come to Australia, the Chinese immigration has improved Australia to no end. For the most part, despite having to put up with some of the most hideous racism, a lot of which is subtle, some of which was not subtle, yet Chinese people have come here some uh, five and six generations into it, which I find fascinating and thrilling and exciting and something to be proud of. I don't think I've got five generations. I think I'm four generations Australian-born. So Peter Dutton is playing on very base, very old, very out-of-date, very wrong instincts. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud and Amazon Music, or find us at newpolitics.com.au, and you can now support New Politics through Patreon. Up next, we look at how the by-elections in New South Wales on the weekend will affect the next federal election. There were four by-elections over the weekend in New South Wales. The counting of the votes is still going on, but we've been asked if there are any implications from these by-elections for the federal election. And as Julia Gillard once said, It doesn't explain everything. It doesn't explain nothing. It explains some things. Yes, there are implications, but until that time that federal, state and council elections are held on the same day, we'll never know exactly what they are. So one event that might have affected the election on a particular day might disappear in two weeks' time, or a particular scandal arrives at one point and lingers on for a long time. So we don't know exactly what the implications are, but we'll try our best. There was a massive swing against the Liberal Party in the seat of Bega on the south coast and to a lesser extent in the seat of Monero. And these seats do have some overlap in the federal seats of Eden, Monero and Gilmore. But these seats are already held by the Labor Party federally. So if there is a big swing there at the federal election, it doesn't make any difference because Labor already holds those seats. But I think that the bigger issue for the Liberal Party at the moment is what happened in the seat of Willoughby, and that was occupied by 
The former New South Wales Premier, Gladys Berejiklian, who resigned amid allegations of corruption. And for people who don't know much about the Willoughby region, it's Liberal Party heartland on the north shore of Sydney. It's quite affluent as well. So the counting is still going on in that seat as well, but there's a 19% swing against the Liberal Party and towards the independent candidate, Larissa Penn. Now, why does this spell trouble for the Liberal Party for the federal election? In the seats of North Sydney, Goldstein, Kooyong, Flinders and Wentworth, all of these seats have got similar characteristics to the seat of Willoughby. They're all safe Liberal seats. They're seats that will never vote for the Labor Party and they've got very good women candidates. And that was exactly the case in the seat of Willoughby. And I'd be very worried about those federal seats flipping over to the independents. And the by-elections can also confirm that the New South Wales Liberal Party is in a lot of political trouble. It doesn't bode well for them in the 2023 state election, but that's another year away. So these problems can be turned around. But for Scott Morrison, who is facing an election over the next few months, it's not looking very good at all. As we speak... There's only been about 30% of the votes counted in Willoughby. And that's because there was a very, very large postal vote turnout. And they can't start counting the postal votes till the Monday. or The, the polls close once all the or normally cast votes are uh, counted. They then count the postal votes. As of close of counting yesterday, Larissa Penn was only 570 votes behind Tim James with only 30% of the votes. The seat of Willoughby has gone from very safe liberal, it was Gladys Berejiklian's seat and she was a very popular local member, to being a, a marginal seat in one go. Now, Tim James was essentially parachuted in. Uh, there was a factional deal done that the hard right, led by Perrottet, then didn't honour. This is something that might be worth looking at in other states and territories, particularly Victoria. Uh, The Liberal Party is desperate. The hard right is also desperate. It knows that it's on the way out, that it's on the nose with voters, that its policies have failed and that it's going to lose its influence. So they are reneging on deals. They are cheating. They are making outlandish claims about other people, all to try and survive. Whether or not the seat of Willoughby is retained by the Liberal Party or whether it goes to the independent candidate, it doesn't really matter that much. It's what's actually happening within the seat that's really causing trouble. Whether it ends up being that 19% swing or 15% swing against the Liberal Party, I think we just have to look at what this means for all of those other seats we're talking about. The margins are not as massive as they are in the seat of Willoughby and all of those other seats that I mentioned, North Sydney, Goldstein, Cuyon, Flinders, Wentworth. All of those seats have got far lesser margins, and even if they have a 5, 6, 7 or 8% swing against them going to the independent candidates, well, there's the majority gone for the Liberal Party at the next election. They'll be thrown out of government on the basis of independents holding the balance of power. The fact that Bega went to the Labor Party for the first time ever was probably enough to show that the Liberal brand, at least in New South Wales, is very much on the nose. Now, in Bega, it was because of the bushfires. Also, David Spears apparently was shocked that there was hardly any COVID in Bega, so why would they vote against the government? One, acknowledging that the government has uh, mismanaged COVID, but two, showing a lack of broader thought as to why Bega might 
throw out a party that had served them for over 100 years. There are implications for other states. We've, we've got the South Australian elections coming up. Now, the Marshall government has dealt with the pandemic fairly well. We've said this before, kept numbers down for as long as it could. Again, New South Wales was the one who ruined a lot of its planning. And I think there's an understanding in South Australia that this is the case, that the government itself is not to blame. However, it's been caught up in its own corruption scandals. And a couple of ministers are seeing it's now soon to be defunct corruption commission. And again, that wasn't a good look, shutting down a corruption commission <laughs> while you've got ministers facing it really doesn't help their case, I, I should argue. Well, that election in South Australia is occurring on March the 19th. That's just in a few weeks' time. So there's definitely no influence for what happened in New South Wales. Well, it won't affect the election result in South Australia at all. But I guess it's just a question of whether it's picking up on the national mood. And you referred to this before. The general consensus has been that the pandemic has been favouring incumbent governments. But I guess the big issue that has been overlooked is that the governments that have won elections since the pandemic commenced have been rewarded for their competence, not just because they happen to be in government at that time. And the South Australian government is actually in minority at the moment, as is the New South Wales government. And it does have those corruption issues that you mentioned before. But the best that South Australia Labor can do under Peter Malinowskis is probably achieve a hung parliament. There's only one or two very marginal seats that they can go for. All of the other seats that they need to win to form government, they're in the 6 or 7% margin. The other factor is that there's not enough federal seats in South Australia to make a huge difference for federal politics. There's only one seat, and that's the seat of Boothby, that Labor are seriously targeting. But whether or not there's a change to the government at the South Australia election on March 19th, whatever happens, it will give us a few ideas for what to expect at the federal election and to see if what was commenced at the by-elections in New South Wales on the weekend then continues into South Australia in March and then on to the federal election in May. Mm. I suspect that Morrison is hoping that a lot of voter anger will be dissipated with the New South Wales by-elections and the South Australian election. I don't think it will. I think that we've seen this before. Now, we're going to get people tell us that most by-elections swing against the government. And this is true. But very rarely does a by-election tip a safe seat. And it looks like we've definitely got one and it looks like two safe seats and incredibly safe seats being tipped. And I think that's just a warm-up for the main act in May of this year. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud and Amazon Music, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can now support New Politics through Patreon. Up next, how difficult will it be for Scott Morrison or for Anthony Albanese to win the next federal election? I was reminded Every measure, riding trade winds, buried treasure. I got on fine with modern living, but must I be such a citizen? And the world still so wild, called to me. 
Many people are suggesting that Labor was in a similar position electorally in the lead up to the 2019 federal election compared to where they are now. And because they ended up losing the last election, they're a strong chance to also lose the 2022 election, irrespective of how well they're positioned at the moment. Now, of course, that may end up being the case, but we won't find out until the night of the actual election and the date hasn't been set for that yet. If we compare polling from mid-November in 2018 with mid-November in 2021, the polls were exactly the same with Labor leading the coalition in two-party preferred vote at 53% to 47%. They're exactly the same. After mid-November 2018, the polls started to move towards the coalition. They narrowed dramatically in the final weeks before the election and the coalition ended up winning the 2019 election. But this time around, in November 2021 and onwards, the polls have started moving away from the coalition and towards the Labor Party. So it's completely different to the lead up to the 2019 federal election. There's still an understanding that this will be a very difficult election for Labor to win and so many factors need to fall into place for Labor to give that victory speech on election night. But could we also say that so many factors also need to fall into place for the coalition if they're going to claim victory as well? We have a very good system of voting in Australia. In Britain, of course, you've got the first past the post system, which means whoever gets the highest aggregate of votes wins. That's fine if you've only got two candidates in a seat. But if you've got three candidates of a seat, someone can get in on 34% of the vote. And that means that two-thirds of the people who voted in that seat got a candidate they did not vote for. That's why it's a flawed system. Of course, it works in favour of the status quo, so they keep it. In Australia, it's a bit more. You can say, well, I want this person first. Uh, If they don't win, then I want this person and go down the list till it's sorted out. Now, it's not a perfect system because you can get the anomaly. The system can be rigged, probably not the right word. Maybe gamed is a better word in that if you have enough people who say in public they don't support you, but in private they do, and are able to direct their preferences to the less popular candidate, you can still run into these types of issues, which is, I think, the strategy of Clive Palmer and, to a lesser extent, One Nation. Uh, Those right-wing lunatic parties are still, for all their talk of hating the Liberal Party, they would still prefer a Liberal Party than a Labour Party government. And there seems to be more right-leaning parties than left-leaning parties which is really just a shadow or a ghost for one of the major, usually the Liberal Party, but sometimes the Labor Party, and they push the preferences through. And this is where elections can be tipped in Australia. So we have a system that can be manipulated. It's harder to manipulate. And done properly, it's a, it's a very fair system. But we can't trust it to put forth the results that the majority has asked for. Well, I guess that's one reason why there's so many people at the moment that are reluctant to be confident of anything in the lead up to the next election. But it's also the case that so many people were caught out predicting the last election and you got it right last time, David. I was one of those people that didn't get it right. And just to let our audience know that I do take on responsibility when things go wrong, unlike our current Prime Minister. But Labor does need to pick up seven seats to win the next election. And 
There's mathematical issues that come into play here. There's a band of ultra-marginal seats held by the coalition of less than 1.5%, and that's four seats. But one of those, if it does fall, is Wentworth, which would go to the independent Voices of candidate, Allegra Spender. And then after this, there's around five seats in the 3 to 4% margin, and, and a swing of 3.7% to the Labor Party would give it a two-party preferred vote of 52.3%. And that's normally landslide territory in Australian elections. But if there is a uniform swing at the next election, it would give Labor only... 78 seats, which is still a victory, but it's only a narrow victory. And there's also a possibility that Labor could end up getting 52.3% of the two-party preferred vote and not actually win the election. That's never been done before, but the highest level of the two-party preferred vote without actually winning the election is 51.5%. And that was Kim Beasley's Labor all the way back in the 1998 federal election. And if we look further afield, there's six seats in the four to five percent band and then there's a few more which are a little bit out of reach of further six seats in the margin between five and six percent and of course if there's a big swing against the government everything that i've just said is all totally irrelevant but i can see why there's a reluctance by many media commentators to be confident of a labor victory and why also they're suggesting that the coalition is still in the box seat one thing i've said this before but i think it bears repeating i don't believe that the polls are deliberately wrong. I don't think it's a good business model to have wrong polls. I believe that the polls are struggling to find the rubrics that can accurately predict. The other thing too is that you can't just look at news poll or any of the others. You have to look at all of them in an aggregate and you have to average them out and it can become quite difficult. And the third thing to remember is that it's not one election, it's 151 individual elections, really. People might despise the Prime Minister or they might despise the leader of the opposition, but they will vote for their parties because they like their local member, for example, or that the government or the opposition has promised a certain benefit, a new hospital, a new road to fix up the parks, to whatever in that electorate, which is enough to tip the vote from one way to the other. It's those micro seats that are the worry if you're in opposition because while it seems that they're the easiest to win, they're actually the hardest to win. Having said that, I think if I was Dave Sharma in uh, Wentworth, I'd be dusting off my CV. I think Josh Frydenberg is under a lot of pressure in Kuyong. I don't think Scott Morrison is under any threat of losing his seat, although if they lose the election he'll be gone very quickly from Parliament. I think he's not one of those, like, say, Wayne Swan, who hung around to make sure that he could help start in the rebuilding process as a elder statesman type. John Gorton, too, did that. It's harder to predict, but I can't help but feel, and I've said this before, and I've said this in this podcast, I can't help but feel that there is a change in the air. So I'm less inclined to make any prediction at this stage. And the other thing we have to remember too is that an election hasn't been called at the time of recording. And till we know if it's going to be a long election campaign or a short, sharp election campaign, we can't know how the campaign is really going to go. 
But it does seem that the campaign has already commenced. So you correctly mentioned that it hasn't been called yet. But there's still a lot of things that need to fall into place for all of the political parties that are intending to contest the next election. And of course, every political party that does contest a federal election or any sort of election, it does try and win every seat that they contest. But it seems that the Labor Party is heavily targeting four seats in Queensland, four seats in New South Wales, two in northern Tasmania, one in South Australia, three in Western Australia. And if it wins those seats and it holds all the seats that it already has in Parliament, well, that's the election over. It doesn't really matter what the swings are in all the other seats. But the problem for the Labor Party will be, and this is something that happens in every election, is that the Liberal Party will also be focusing on those same seats and sandbagging them as much as possible. But if people have decided that it's time for the coalition to go, as you mentioned, there might be a change in the air. There's no amount of sandbagging or promises or announcements that will stop an election loss. And there could be seats won and lost in the election that we least expect them to fall as well. Yeah, there's a model where we end up in the exact same position we are now, but with a different configuration of seats. What the Liberal Party does do very well is that it has a group of analysts somewhere in its campaign who knows what seats can keep and win. And it will be interesting to see. The seat of Flynn, which is the Biloela family, who have been in detention for the last three years for no reason that anyone can really see. And the shenanigans of the government has been disgraceful on a family who are a part of the community. You can bet that if they're going to be released, it'll be the day the election is called or the day before the election is called. Not because it's the right thing to do, but because the government will see that there is an electoral advantage to it, that that might get them that seat. And while there's always a wide range of issues that will influence the election whenever it's called, it obviously has to happen before May 2022, we've already discussed some of these factors. That The government is focusing on the issues that don't really matter too much. It seems to be more about appealing to their base supporters and extremists within the electorate. But irrespective of that, the economy, the government's management of the pandemic will be the key issues as well as health and education. And of course, all of those issues are usually the key indicators or the key issues within an election campaign. Well, not the pandemic, because that hasn't happened for over 100 years. But all of these things will be the key issues within the next federal election campaign. Scott Morrison is very, very keen to talk about the future because the past doesn't look so good for him. And that's why he keeps saying that we're not looking at the rear vision mirror. He's looking through the windscreen. But just to extend that driving analogy, when you're driving a car, and I guess most of our audience would either drive a car or know how to drive a car, if you're not looking at that rear vision mirror, you lack the general awareness of what's around you and you're probably going to cause an accident. And for me, that's symbolic of the Morrison government, a lack of awareness and responding to issues when it's far too late. So that's probably part of the main battle that we'll see coming up in the federal election. Scott Morrison will want to be looking at the future so that people forget about the past. And Anthony Albanese wants to focus on the government's record as a reminder of what that future might look like if the Scott Morrison government returns to office. The other thing, too, that it's easier to win an election with a united team. You can still lose an election with a united team, but usually the side in disarray loses. And it didn't happen in 2019 where there were the same hatreds and divisions existed. 
but you can only sustain that type of thing for so long. And winning the election didn't really unite the Liberal Party or the coalition even in a way that often elections do. We've got lunatic coalition members like George Christensen who is feeding into the anti-vax thing. And I'm pretty sure the anti-vax thing can be traced back to billionaires who want to undermine climate science. So they're undermining every science, including medical science. And that makes sense for Christensen to sort of jump on this because he's very much in favour of mining in Australia. Doesn't make it right, by the way. I'm just pointing out that that would be his logic. We have open corruption and Australians will tolerate corruption to an extent. Bjorki Pedersen in Queensland, although he was helped by a gerrymander or a gerrymander as it's properly pronounced. Askin in New South Wales. But when it's open and blatant, we don't like it. And I think when you look at all the corruption in the federal government, and I'll qualify that by saying perceived corruption, none of it's gone to court to be tested. But there's a lot of perceived corruption in the, the federal government that, that again is starting to seep through. You end up less with Robert Askin at 13 years as New South Wales Premier and more like Gladys Berejiklian at three years. And that's something they've got to worry about, but they're not doing anything about. That's it for this episode of New Politics. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.